They got good news and bad news. The good news is that Craig Clapper is fine. He was scheduled to be preaching today. Craig uh, comes here about every summer for quite a while. So he went for some routine tests last Monday. And then Thursday afternoon, got a call from the doctor saying, you need to come for a heart cath tomorrow morning, Friday morning. So he called me Thursday. And so I said, uh, I mean, so that's why I'm here. So that's the bad news that got to listen to Dave again. The good news is that I didn't have much time to prepare, so it might be a short sermon. (laughs) Bad news is it probably won't be, but... And the really bad news is that there's no word search on your sermon outline today. Is anyone outraged? Anyone raise your hand? You're outraged? Furious? No word search. Right there, Leona. Leona, bring that mic... The annual business meeting next Sunday night at 5 o'clock would be an appropriate time to discharge your your outrage. Furious. Josh at wawaseebible.com. You send send him an email. So, life groups are starting up, and I'm the pastor of life groups. Um, Life groups are 8 to 15 people meeting at homes or at church, and really encourage every single person to be involved in a life group. Because you need big church and you need small church. You need big church for the environment that we have and hearing the Word of God and the worship. You need small churches for friends in order to be real, to be honest, uh, to be known and, and to know others. And so we really encourage everyone to be a part of a small group. And so I'm going to work the, that into my message a little bit. We've been working through the book of Proverbs. We're going to be talking about friendship today. And friends are one of those words, I mean, just that gets tossed around a lot. And I want you to think about friendship as God's idea, God's creation. The beer companies, uh, evolution did not create the, the idea of friendship, but that friendship, when you see two people really connecting, um, enjoying each other, three people, four people, and they have just uh, come to know each other, and there's that satisfaction of friendship, brotherhood, sisterhood, that that was God's idea. That you and I are made in the image of God, and that God created friendship in the same way that he created marriage, in the same way he created family. And that God has a recipe, God has a design for friendship, what real friends are about, what true friendship is all about. So that's where I'm going to steer toward today. So let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, guide us, uh, build us up, uh, sharpen us, open our minds just to receive the Bible, to receive your word, to take to heart that it would change, that it would influence us, that it would transform us. Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of friendship. And we want to be true friends. We want to have true friends. So guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can open up in your Bible if you've got it on your phone, follow along on the screen, but I'm going to go to Proverbs 17, 17. Proverbs 17, 17. Follow along the outline. First line is, a friend loves at all times. A true friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. So a real friend, as opposed to a fake friend, is always there. What defines a true friend is consistency reliability, confidence. You know he or she is going to be there. 
He or she will make time for you. He or she will say, okay, I'll drop this so I can be with you to help you. A true friend loves at all times, regardless of age, money's up or down, life circumstances are hard or easy. What defines a true friend is just consistency, constancy, availability. A true friend loves at all times, in all seasons, in all circumstances. And a brother is born for adversity. So the second half of this Bible verse, a brother, a sister, a true friend is born, is created, is made for adversity. God, when he made you, he made you to be there for other people in hard times. He made human beings. Good times and easy times are fine, but he made us to be interlocking, interdependent. The world may have the idea that you and I, the greatest person, the strongest person, is the person who doesn't need anybody. And that's a fiction. The world says the greatest person, the strongest person, is someone who doesn't need strength or need help from anybody. They're an amoeba. They just can dysfunction all by themselves. And that's a lie. God made you to be like himself as he is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, interdependent, perfect, complementarian. He made you to be interlocking with other people. That you are healthier and happier when you are depending on someone else and other people are depending on you. That is where you get your greatest joy, your greatest happiness. It's not an independence, but an interdependence. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. In a similar way, you have a wedding ceremony where it's a public thing where you pledge to commit one another. In an informal way, friendship is to be similar. That when God calls us to be friends, and Jesus even says, you, I call you my friends, what has he done? He's pledged himself to us. He died for our sins. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. In a similar way, as Christians, as Christ followers, we, we pledge ourselves as friends. When we're going to be friends with people, it's a commitment. It's a decision to love, to be consistent in each other's lives. And it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. I remember talking to a guy and we were talking about small groups and why he wasn't involved. And he's like, I don't want to go to a small group because I don't want to hear about other people's problems. And how many of us can understand that and relate to that? I don't want to always hear about other people's problems. I mean, wouldn't we all like to create this perfect where don't talk to me if you've got a problem. Only tell me happy things. Let's all talk about, you know, nice days, good weather, fun things. And let's just block out all the noise, all the pain, all the sorrow. Let's just shut it all out. I don't want to hear about any pain, anyone's sad story. I just want life. I want to pretend that life is just perfectly fine. The only problem is you were born for adversity. You were created to help and be helped. You were created to depend on others and to have others depend on you. That is the purpose for your life, and you will never be happy, you'll never be fulfilled, you'll never have meaning in your life until you're interdependent with other people, loving at all times, born for adversity. You were made by God, for God, you were made for adversity. 
Your glory for all eternity will be that you received help and that you gave help to other people on earth. If you just go through life self-centered, I want to block it all out. I want to just, just be me. You take care of your problems. I'll take care of my problems, and we'll do the best we can. That's, that's a waste. That's missing the point of, of why God created you. You were born for adversity. And Jesus, it's just simply a reflection of our Savior, that Jesus loves you at all times, in your best and your worst, on your best days and on your worst days. No one knows you like Jesus. No one knows your strengths. No one knows your weaknesses. No one knows your sins like Jesus, and he loves you at all times. And he's there for you, always in your adversity. And so our friendships are just a mirror, a reflection of who he is for us. And it's not easy. Um, And God fleshes it out for us. Many times I could pick so many what are called the one another's of the New Testament. Just three quick ones. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So God's definition of friendship for you and me and being true friends to one another, is that we help carry each other. We, we receive the weight, the, the emotional weight of someone's sorrow or trial. We receive, perhaps we, we might physically be helping someone move. We, we feel the pressure of, of someone else's heaviness. And thus we fulfill the law of Christ. So as Christ carries you, you help carry someone else. As Christ has carried the weight of our sins, as Christ has helped carry the weight of your sin, so you help carry the weight of someone else's trial and burden. Next one is Galatians 5.13. Just want to look at the very end. But through love, serve one another. You are created to serve one another. Regardless if anyone thanks you, regardless if someone notices, regardless if someone applauds, without keeping score, like I did this for you, so I served you, so um, I hope you're watching, so you'll serve me later. But for as Christ has served you, we're to serve one another. And we actually find joy in serving. That is the meaning of our lives, is to be able to serve one another. Next verse is from James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Confessing means to, like, hey, I had a hard week. I stumbled. I didn't quite tell the truth at, at work. I really was kind of mean to a family member. Um, I did something wrong at, at work. Whatever it is, that we confess our sins to one another. Because as followers of Christ, we all know that we, we still fall short. We still need the grace of God. And so when we come together, we're not afraid to be open and honest that, hey, I blew it this week. I need to confess this because there's power and there's freedom when we tell our brothers and sisters that I'm having a hard time. And then more than that, we pray for one another. I mean, we actually go to God and we say, Lord, help my sister. Lord, help my brother. Help renew him in his mind. Help renew him in his life. That you may be, what's the last word there? healed, that you may be restored. Don't we want to be healed? 
Don't we want to be made new, refreshed? So this year for life groups, when we come together as followers of Christ, and are we, is our goal to love each other at all times? Yes. In life groups, is it to be normal that when we gather, whether we do it as a, as a small group or we divide men and women in one room or another, and we, we, we talk about our adversities, our trials? Yes. Are we supposed to just say, hey, I'm good, how about you, let's wrap it up? No. The point of life groups, our small groups, is not just to be space filler. It's not just to be like, we need to do a church activity, try to score points with God. The point of our life groups is to have great, true, and honest, life-giving relationships. Otherwise, they're a waste of time. I wouldn't go to them. But for life groups, we want to push and steer toward trying to get to the point where it's a safe place to confess our sins. And for the, you know, if there's, there's four men in a room, and like one of the guys says, I've really blown it this week, and that the other three guys say, the Lord forgives you. Let's pray for you. That's exactly what we want to see happen in our life groups. That makes a life group worth going to. I've met with almost all our life group leaders this summer and it's not going to be, I'm going to keep saying this probably maybe next week at the annual meeting at Send and so on, but I'm asking every life group, if you go to a Wawasee Bible life group, that you will be prayed for by name. You do not have to pray out loud. I know that could be a little scary thing. You don't even have to share anything, but I'm asking this year and so on that every time you come to a Wawasee Bible Life Group, someone's going to take you and, and lift your name up to the Father. Because we've, that's normal. That's normal Christian life. It's normal for us to say, I'm wrestling. It's normal for us to be honest. It's normal to bear each other's burdens. That's what we want to push into, uh, continue. We want our, our life groups to be worth going to and that, that we're honest, that we're free, we confess our sins, we pray for one another. So a true friend loves at all times, and a true friend is not a people pleaser. A true friend is not a people pleaser. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare. What is the fear of man? The fear of man is the obsession with what others think will say their opinion of us. The fear of man is that I'm down, I'm depressed because he, she, or they don't think well of me. They don't think I'm cool. They don't like my sermon. They don't like my looks. They don't like my clothes. They just don't, they don't approve. But if I try to say the right things, if I try to fit in, if I laugh at the right times, maybe they will think well of me. The fear of man is just that obsession that I can't, I can't live I can't ever be happy unless he thinks well of me, unless she thinks well of me, unless they accept me and think well of me. And that's a lie. That's a trap. It's a snare. The fear of man is people-pleasing. The fear of man can be an idol, a form of slavery. It is a serious addiction 
bondage, and it's a lie. The fear of man, what people will think, the fear of what people will say, the fear of not being liked. The problem with people-pleasing is that it will make you do things you don't want to do. The problem with people-pleasing, the fear of man, it will make you say things or not say things when you really should. The fear of man, people-pleasing, is a problem because it makes you dishonest. It forces you to be someone you're not. You can't be free. You can't be genuine. You're a slave. You're trapped. It says the fear of man is a snare, like that animal walking through the woods, and maybe there's at the neck level or at the foot level, and the animal steps into it or puts its head through it, snares it, gets caught. The more it tries to wrestle, the more suffocating, killing. You can't breathe can't move. And if your obsession is, if, if you're enslaved to like this person, I need this person to think well of me, or I'm just, I can't, I can't function. I'm always nervous. I'm always anxious. What are they thinking about me? Do they accept me? Are they happy with me? Do they like me? It's like that animal getting caught around the neck or the foot, trapped, suffocating, dying, choking. The fear of man lays a snare. People-pleasing doesn't even, it doesn't even work. Proverbs 28, 23 says this, Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Now, if, if we're enslaved to people-pleasing, no way are we going like, to say the truth and like, hey, stop that, or no, that's not right. But someone will. And if, if, you're, if we're people pleasers, like, like, oh, you're awesome, you're great, flattery is the way to go. But then that person comes along and, and rebukes a man, says, speaks up and says the truth, even when no one wants to hear it. But that man or that woman often finds more favor later on, like, yeah, he got us. But that finds more favor than the person who just tries to people please. Jesus, on his part, understood this. In John chapter 2, it says this, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Who's them, that innocuous them? Them is all the fame and fortune, the crowd that is just, you know, they're the ones we're trying to please. That innocuous them, whether it's in, in high school or the middle school or at work, there's that crowd that everyone's trying to be in, fit in. Be accepted. Be approved. And Jesus is like, he did not entrust himself to them. He didn't value that. He knew how fickle, how fleeting it is. It goes on, because he, Jesus, knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew that people-pleasing is a dead end. It does not lead to life. And if you make yourself a slave, you're going to end up being suffocated and being choked under the pressure of always trying to make the crowd happy. And he did not entrust himself to the crowd. And that needs to, we need to follow his example. In verse 29, uh, 
20, verse 25, Proverbs. Coming back to that. The fear of man lays a snare, but listen closely. Look closely. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Trusting the Lord is the antidote. Cuts the snare of people-pleasing. The fear of man lays a snare that, that somehow we get fooled into thinking some person is in control of our happiness. That some person, some they, he, or she, is the key to our satisfaction when that is just simply a lie. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The opposite of the fear of man is knowing that God's in control, that our happiness is in God. Trusting God and why it's safe is is coming to that place where I don't care about them, he or she. I'm going to say, I'm going to trust the Lord and say what is right, and I'm going to be safe and free. Yeah, I'm worried about what they might think. I'm worried about what they might do, but I'm going to trust the Lord and do what is right and let the chips fall where they may. Let people think what they want. I'm going to trust the Lord. When we trust the Lord, you're going to be safe. Who controls your eternal destiny? Them or the Lord? Trust the Lord. You're going to be safe. Uh, Psalm 56:11. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Maybe you'll lose your job. But whoever trusts in the Lord, the Lord will, he can provide a new job. Maybe I won't have as much money. But I'm going to trust the Lord and I'm going to be safe. Maybe people won't like me as much. Maybe they won't. But I'm going to trust the Lord. And I'm going to be safe. Maybe people won't, won't like it if I, if I speak up, but what can man really do to me? God is the one. God is the one that we want to be concerned with. And coming back to uh, where we started in Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, verse uh, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of man lays a snare. Look at these side by side. So it's for each one of us, we have this decision. It's the fear of the Lord or the fear of man. It's being obsessed with, they need to be happy with me. Or it's, "I I want my Savior to be happy with me. Who are we going to stand before one day? Who truly controls Who truly works in our lives? We want to be those who, we fear the Lord. Not in a craven fear, but we respect Him. He's the one that we want to be concerned about. If the Lord is pleased with me, life is great. No matter the circumstances, I can be at peace. I can have joy. The fear of the Lord over the fear of the man. Part of breaking free of the the fear of man is, Lord, Help me. We pray, Lord, help me to fear you. We think about God and his greatness. We think about that he is the one who's sovereign. We think about he's the one who loves you. He is the one who will never disappoint you. He is the one, he's the friend who will never fail you. And just meditate on, Lord, let me, let me fear you and be free of people pleasing so that I can be an honest, true friend. 
from a, from a different angle. Uh, go back to uh, Proverbs 29:25 for a moment there. Uh, the fear of man lays a snare. Just looking at this verse and, and just turning it to a different angle. We also want to pray and ask, Lord, let me never be the one who creates that in other people. Now, it's true that, I mean, you know, for me as a dad, I want my, my son to have a certain, a little, a little bit of fear, but primarily I want him to have love. And, you know, we've got a teacher, a coach, a boss. There, there, there should be some fear and respect. But we never want to be those who are making others fear us. How many times have I sat with, I've seen it in marriages where, you know, they go to the counselor and, like, uh, the counselor asks, like, hey, how, how's your marriage doing? And, you know, one spouse is, speaks up and says, our marriage is good. And it's very clear that the other spouse better not say there's any trouble there because, uh, well, there'll be a price to pay if they're honest. And so we always want to make sure that for us as followers of Christ, we're not creating that, that crave and fear of others just to make life smoother for ourselves. Lord, let it never be. But the Bible acknowledges that the struggle is real, that we wrestle because don't all of us want, we, we would rather have people like us than not like us. Even the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So even the Apostle Paul says, I mean, this is a wrestling, a choice, a direction in life. I'm either seeking God's approval or I'm seeking man's approval. But Paul says, as for me, I've chosen Christ. I'm going to serve Christ. I'm going to serve other people, whether I get thanked or not, whether people approve of me or not, but I'm going to be God's servant and forsake the approval of man. A true friend loves at all times. A true friend is not a slave to people-pleasing. For life groups, we want life groups to be a place where we can be honest, be ourselves. We're not about trying to like go around the circle and um, say the right things during the Bible study, uh, ask the right questions so we'll look smart. In life groups, we just want to be a place where you can just be honest and be yourself. We're not worried about you know, what people are thinking of our, our answers, our Bible knowledge, but just that, you know, we're, we're there to seek God together. Next up is, as a true friend, instead of being a people pleaser, but a true friend, as God has designed, is someone who will challenge you. A true friend is someone who will tell you something you do not want to hear. A true friend is something, someone who will tell you something that may upset your feelings, may wound you, but they will do it because she or he loves you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27.5 says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Let's say uh, Joe is about to walk into a busy street and Pete and Dave are watching him and Pete really cares about him. Dave is like, whatever. But Dave shouts out, Joe, what are you doing? Don't, don't go out in that. You're about to get hit. But Pete was like, well, I, I really care about Joe, but I don't want Joe to be upset with me, so I don't want to shout at him because he might 
That's hidden love. So what the Bible's talking about, it's better when the person just say, hey, stop that. Don't do that. Better that than the person in hidden love, like, I really care about that person, but I'm afraid um, that they might be upset. I don't want to offend them, so I hide my love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And it goes on, the next verse, in verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A true friend, a faithful friend, is a person who loves you enough to wound you. This is God's idea of friendship. This is what real friendship is. A fake friend, a false friend, a bad friend, profuse, many are the kisses of an, of an enemy. Joe told you that you need to change your life? Oh, kisses, 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 hugs, pats on the back. That's, that was so wrong of him to judge you, to say that. You're just fine. I can't believe he doesn't accept you just the way you are. You don't need to change a thing about your life. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Profuse are the pats of a, of a, on the back of, of a friend who doesn't really care about you. Many are the pats on the back, little hugs, of a friend who doesn't really, doesn't really care about you. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. The words that might sting a little bit, make you think, upset you, but hopefully lead to your healing, give you an opportunity to, to turn from your sin or your error or wrong ways. When you think of wound, think of a doctor, surgery, healing, that type of wound, not just to hurt you, but to hurt you in order to heal you. Um, the biblical word, New Testament, talks about admonishment. A couple times it comes up. It, the word admonishing means to, to warn, to exhort, to counsel, to urge and plead with someone to choose God's way, to choose life. This is to be a normal part of, of Christian relationships. Colossians 1.28, He, Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone uh, warning, urging, pleading, uh, correcting each other, um, calling each other to task, um, helping each other. So if this idea seems strange to you, that the idea that on a normal, regular basis, whether in small groups or here, that, that you and I as followers of Christ, on a regular basis are supposed to be like, hey, what about this in your life? Hey, how are you doing in this area of your life? How are you doing in this area of sin or your sin area? That that's supposed to be normal, not something like in dire straits, we only at, at, at last resort, we, we confess we've got something. But think about this. What kind of business do you want to invest your money in? And what kind of business do you admire? Do you admire the type of business where you walk in where there's accountability. Where like, hey, let's do a good job. No, no, let's send that back on the line because that, that looks terrible. We need to fix that up and make it look perfect. Look, make it look right. Where there's accountability, where, where employees are challenging each other, where, where employees are, are holding each other, saying you can do better, we can do better, we can make a better product, we can make it more efficient, we can make a better profit. And that's acceptable, right? 
because money is the goal, right? It's, it's great for a corporation or a business to challenge, to work hard, to, to push each other because the goal is making money, right? What about a sports team? NFL training camps are open. Do you want your favorite team to be saying, to be working hard, practicing hard, pushing each other? Come on, let's do that play for the 30th time. Why? Because we want to win a game. We want to have a good season. We want to have a winning record. We want to win the Super Bowl. Do you admire that? Is that acceptable? Is that respected in American society? For, for winning a game, winning a game and being champions, winning the league, that is perfectly acceptable, normal, admirable for that sports team to say, come on, you can do better. Then how can it not be acceptable for the followers of Christ for us to challenge each other? How can it not be acceptable and normal then for the followers of Jesus Christ to say, come on, brother, come on, sister, let's go harder? Because our mission is so much more important than money. No one's taking any money to heaven or to eternity with them. Money will have no value. We cannot admire a business for pushing hard and let the church, like, oh, we don't, we don't push each other at all. Just all grace, which is a wrong understanding of grace, but that's a different message. It can't be acceptable for sports teams that we admire them for pushing each other hard when it's, it's just ultimately a game. For us as followers of Christ, it must be. We are, we're trying to save souls for all eternity. What's more important than that? And what kind of attitude do we want to have? We want to have the right attitude to listen. Proverbs 15.31 says this, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Unfortunately, when someone gives us a life-giving reproof, what are we often doing? Are we listening? Maybe. Or maybe we're thinking of ways that we're loading the ammunition to uh, ready to fire back. How dare they attack me? Well, let, let me hear. But the Bible says, listen. Actually, listen. I had a, uh, an older pastor who uh, mentored me, uh, and, he, and he said to me, you know, Dave, when, when people are going to come to you with criticism, whether it's 80% true, whether it's 3% true, whether it's 50% true, try to listen and try to get whatever you can. Whether it's 98% false or, whether, or it's mainly true, try to grow, to, to pick from it ways to grow. That's the attitude for us as followers of Christ. Why are we afraid of criticism? We all know as followers of Christ that we're all in process, right? So it's, it's no surprise that all of us need, we have ways to, to go. So we want to be open to it. The ear that listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. We're smart. We're intelligent when we listen. Next verse, Psalm 141.5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness 
So our, our attitude needs to be, thank you. Thank you for helping me grow in maturity as, as a man or a woman. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. That's a good thing back then. Let my head not refuse it. That's a blessing. That's an honor. Thank you. It's an openness to receive. I've found over the years, I mean, like in my marriage, for example, um, just like going to my wife every so often and just saying, hey, is there, is there some way that I can grow? Is there something? And uh, to the point where last time I asked her, she rolled her eyes at me. Just like, oh, man, you're asking me that again. But I would challenge you this week to take the initiative. If you want to grow and mature, whether it's your spouse, a friend, go to them. You take the initiative. How can I grow? Is there a weakness, an area of my life? Take the initiative. And it, that will help you if there's a problem with criticism, if you're overly sensitive. It'll help you grow in your ability to not get so upset when someone mentions, like, hey, you could work on this area. Because how many of us have areas in our life to work on? How many of us? All of us. Every one of us. We all do. The attitude is so repent and grow. Repentance, turning from sin and turning to Jesus, saying, forgive me, that's to be a lifestyle. So what? Repent and grow. Be a big Christian. Be a big man Christian. Be a big woman Christian. So what? Repent and grow. Apologize. Confess. Repent and grow. That is to be normal. Unfortunately, I've seen this for many, many years. I've seen it in families. I've seen it in churches. I've seen it in small groups of friends. I've seen it at, at workplaces. Say, for example, you have 10 people. One of the 10 will commit a sin. It'll come out that they've done something wrong. Um, they've done something bad. Uh, they've, they've committed a sin. The nine people will talk about it to each other. Isn't what that one person did bad? Oh, yeah, this is terrible. I, I hope they um, get it right. I hope they apologize, etc., etc. But those nine people won't talk to the one. They'll talk to each other, but not the one. And the next time the family, or the next Sunday morning, or the next at workplace, uh, there'll just be something different in the air. The one, uh, they won't get that, that warm a handshake. Maybe there won't be a return phone call. There's just something different. There, there's nonverbal signaling going on that, from the nine that, you know, we're not really happy with your sin. And eventually that one person in the family or church or, or group of friends, they'll get the signal that, oh, these nine people are mad at me, and they'll leave the church or they won't come to the family. They'll cut themselves off. And that is so sad. The nine, and, and the thing is, that that one suffers, but the nine also suffer whether they know it or not because those other nine failed to be a true friend. They failed to, to talk. They failed to trust the Lord 
and say, brother, sister, what you did was wrong. They failed to provide an opportunity and trust the Lord and say, we love you. And even if, if I, I'm just aware that maybe I'm talking to some situation you may be going through right now, it's not too late to say, hey, I should have, I should have talked to you a long time ago. We all felt awkward. We didn't know what to say. Please forgive us for not talking to you about that. And you could still do that, but say, I mean, have you, have you asked the Lord to forgive you for that sin? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We're true friends when we trust the Lord and we go to our friends and say, hey, uh, this is not right. Now, real quickly, I want to give you a little formula that in general has worked for me over the years when you have to wound someone or you, know, you have to talk to have a hard conversation. First, get your facts right. Make sure it's something you saw, you heard, you witnessed, or you, you, you have reliable information. There's also that proverb says that one person seems very right until you talk to the next person. Get your facts right. Second, pray. And I don't mean that glibly. I mean actually pray. Seconds and minutes of pray. I'm talking, you actually take time to pray. Say, Lord, I don't really know what to say to Joe or to Susie. Help me. I care about Susie and Joe. Lord, help me. Help the best to come from this. Help me in this conversation. And you take time. You will be amazed if you actually pray how much better that conversation will go and how it may even resolve itself um, without you even trying if you actually take time to pray. As Christians, we pray. Number two, you pray. Number three, when you're actually with the person, state that you care about them, you love them, some way, shape, or form, express that you care about them. Next, ask a question. Most of the time, ask a question, because how many times we walk into a situation, we think we know what we saw, but I'll start off with like, is it true? I mean, I thought I heard this. Is it true? That way I don't come across as judging. You don't come across as judging but like, ask the questions. I think I saw you do this, or is it, is it true that this has happened? Make it in the form of a question, because I don't, we don't always have, we didn't always see everything. We're not God. We're not all-knowing. It's a lot safer to start with a question most of the time. Next, state briefly the sin or the wrongdoing. Don't load it with, like, I was so angry, or you were you stink or you're, you, you're, I'm mad at you, just state simply, this is wrong, this is the sin, this is the remedy, this is what you need to correct, make it brief. State it, try to keep your emotion out of it or your judgment out of it, and encourage them, offer to help, offer your prayer, offer your love, offer your encouragement to help them do what is right. So in life groups, do we want the type of relationships? Are we steering in our life groups? And for, for that matter, in our church, do we
Do we want an environment where we faith for the wounds of, the friend, of a friend? Or do we want to create an environment at church and life groups where everything is awesome and everyone's fine, everyone's good? Do we want a deep church or a shallow church? Do we want superficial church? Or we want to actually, for all eternity, help us grow as men and women who love Jesus and to heal, be a source of healing to each other, faithful of the wounds of a friend. I mean, I, I want to steer. I mean, I, my hope, my vision is that we have relationships that actually matter, that we do. We have, we have the best and richest relationships at church. Not at neighborhood, not at work. We want you to find your best relationships here. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Where we can be honest and not people-pleasing. Where we love each other at all times. Where we're here for each other in adversity. And it all comes down to having Jesus as our best friend. Jesus. A true friend is Jesus. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. How true is it that he or she may have the crowd, may have a slew of friends, and still be utterly lonely, utterly devoid of meaning in life, may come to ruin. People will always, can always disappoint us. Only Jesus is perfect. If you place too high expectations in any person, you will be disappointed. We have to give grace to each other. Jesus is the only one who will never disappoint us. Jesus is the only one who will never disappoint you. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A lot of times when, when I pray, I will actually say, over the year, last couple years praying, sometimes I'll just say, Jesus... You are my best friend. And I like saying that. He is. My best earthly friend is my wife. But ultimately, there's, you have no friend like Jesus. He is a real friend. He is with you all your life. He is always with you. He will never fail you. And Jesus wants to know, when you go to work tomorrow, he's there. You go to school tomorrow, he's there. You go back to your neighborhood, back in your house, he's there. You can always talk to him. You can always pour out your heart to him. Jesus is your best friend. No one knows you like Jesus. No one accepts you like Jesus. No one forgives you like Jesus. He is your truest and best friend. No matter how many friends you have or don't have, if you have Jesus, you have enough. He is the one you can trust saying and doing what is right. Let people think or say what they want. Jesus is your friend who sticks closer than a brother for all eternity. Buy a journal. Write, write to your best friend Jesus. Talk to him in prayer. Read the Bible. Let him speak to you. Follow his words. Watch him come through for you. Let's pray.